the real change in the paranormal and UFO stuff, and I've said this over and over, is going to come from outside the field in something that's not even related to UFO study, or maybe just tangentially. My friends, this is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5 coming at you here in the middle of the weekend with another edition of BOA Audio. It is the concluding installment of our two-part dual guest look back at 2009, the year in ufology, as well as the decade of the aughts with our longtime friends Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop, the UFO Mystics. We already talked a lot about this conversation at the beginning of part one, but let me give you a little preview of what you're going to be hearing here in part two. For starters, we're going to remember esteemed esoteric researcher Mac Tonys, who was a good friend of Nick and Greg, and whose passing really was a tragic loss for the esoteric community. And then from there, we're going to discuss a few more stories from 2009, including the cancellation of UFO hunters, the Vatican's endorsement of ETs, the UK MOD UFO desk being shut down, and the Norway spiral. That sort of wraps up 2009. We talk a little bit about what might be coming down the line here in 2010. Then we dive into some retrospective discussion on the past decade in the world of esoterica. We're going to look at some of the big trends that emerged over the last 10 years, starting with a look at how the aughts stack up against the other decades as far as UFO research is concerned. Pretty fascinating stuff there. Then we're going to get into the rise of exopolitics in the last 10 years, the displacement of ufology by 9-11 research and ghost hunting as the perceived most popular field in esoterica, the rise of cryptozoology into a quasi-mainstream level, and ultimately how the internet shaped esoterica. It's part two of our year in ufology, as well as our look back at the past decade. BOA Audio says goodbye to 2009 and welcomes 2010 with a concluding installment of a conversation featuring the UFO mystics that is destined for the esoteric time capsule. As I said at the beginning of part one, I gotta tip my hat to Nick and Greg. They really went above and beyond the call of duty here with this year in review and decade retrospective edition of BOA Audio. So I just want to make sure I thank them here at the beginning of the show because I really, really appreciated these guys giving us so much time here for this special two-part dual guest look back at the year 2009. Much like part one, we're going to skip the bios, so let me just give you the websites for these two awesome guests. You can find postings from both of them at ufomystic.com, www.ufomystic.com. You can find out more from Nick Redfern concerning all the areas of esoteric research he's delved into at his website, www.nickredfern.com. Pretty simple, all one word, nickredfern.com. 
And you want to be sure to check out Greg Bishop's tremendous podcast, Radio Mysterioso. Airs Sunday nights, available via the website radiomysterioso.com. And you can pick up a whole slew of episodes from their archive there as well. Let me spell that one out for you because it's a bit complicated. R-A-D-I-O-M-I-S-T-E-R-I-O-S-O.com. Radiomysterioso.com. Check out all those websites. They are really fantastic researchers and enlightened minds to the world of esoterica. I am a huge fan of their stuff, and I hope you check out their work as well. So without any further ado, let's rock and roll and close the book on 2009. This interview was recorded on December 28, 2009. Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop, the UFO Mystics. Looking back on 2009, the year in ufology, as well as the decade of the aughts, on BOA Audio, Season 5. I think we can safely skip Balloon Boy, because uh, <laughs> there, there wasn't too much. <laughs> I just like the term, and the, the story behind it's even funnier, with the, with, the, with the couple that were trying to get on a TV show, and yeah, and their name was Heaney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the only real UFO tie-in was that um, he was sort of a UFO buff. That's really... Uh, we can safely paint him with the most derogatory term that, that's out there, UFO buff, and kind of sullied people who were interested in UFOs for a little while, but that story kind of went down the tubes anyway, and as Greg aptly pointed out last year, you know, the reputation of people who are interested in UFOs is already kind of in the toilet anyway, so it's not like he made it any better or worse. We're already kind of laughed at by the mainstream, so, you know, it's par for the course, so... I think unless someone has something to say about Balloon Boy, uh, I think we can let him safely float away. All right. Good. Yes. All right. Okay, now the next story is uh, was a very big one and, and definitely deeply personal to you two guys and uh, very personal to me. Mac Tony's passed away October 18th. I found it kind of creepy, I guess is the word to use, just that he passed away on the night that Nick and me and Peter Robbins and Greg were on Radio Mysterioso and, and having fun and stuff and just kind of goes to show you, you know, that life is kind of weird like that, you know. You might be having the time of your life and somewhere else out, you know, thousands of miles away, your friend is dying. So it's like kind of struck me as strange. But I know uh, you guys, I'm sure, have a lot to say about Max passing. Um, so... We'll start with Nick, because Greg uh, talked about Sucro last, so we'll, we'll sort of keep it balanced here. So, um, Nick, talk about your good friend Mac Tony's and, and, you know, just how profound this loss was for the community. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've known Mac, uh, or got to know Mac, from roughly about 2004 onwards, when Patrick Weege um, was working as an editor with Paraview Pocketbooks, a division of Simon & Schuster, and they put out uh, Mac's book, after the Martian apocalypse. And I, um, Patrick sent me a copy of the book and I took it on holiday with me when me and Dana went to Mexico um, in the summer of that year and it came back covered in hot sauce and margaritas <laughs> and sand, and, but it was completely red as well. Um, and, you know, I, I enjoyed the book because I read a number of books all about the face on Mars controversy. And what kind of interested me most of all about Mac's book was that it actually wasn't written from a believer's perspective nor was it written from a debunker's perspective it was written from the approach of someone who recognized 
there was a question that needed answering or questions that needed answering. And in some cases, he dismissed certain evidence, but in other cases, he said, hey, you know, this looks genuinely intriguing and weird. And you don't often find that. You know, you, often you find somebody's pushing one particular approach. Um, so that sort of got my attention, and you know, I began to follow Mac's work. I was working uh, for an English magazine at the time and um, did an interview with him, which unfortunately was never published, about, all about his research in that, into that. And then, you know, like everybody, like you and Greg, you know, you stay in touch, you email, you speak on the phone, and I think like me and Greg and Paul and a few others, you know, occasionally we'd have sort of two, three-hour long conversations with Mac, you know, in the, in the evening through the early hours, etc., on all sorts of subjects. And um, so I think, you know, in that respect, he, he, he began like as a someone who has written an interesting book, became a colleague, and then became a friend as time progressed. And, you know, from taking outside the ufological angle, you know, Mac was a good friend because you got to know him as a friend because you spoke about a lot of different things. You know, it wasn't just, oh, what's the latest on Area 51? You know, a bit of music, culture, whatever, TV, yeah. you name it. And I uh, met Mac for the first time, and the only time in person, um, in Canada at uh, Paul Kimball's um, New Frontiers conference in 2006. And, you know, a few people have found it surprising that, you know, I only ever met Mac once in person, but, you know, I still consider him a very good friend. Um, now, you know, at a personal level, you know, I mean, it was a tragic, terrible loss to lose a friend at any time. You know, when they go at 34, that's even worse. And also from a friendship level, but a, a professional level as well, to go when he was just on this cusp, I think, of really eating the big time. Yeah. That's, that makes it even worse. But, you know, I mean, the worst thing of all, apart from... The fact that it was Mac's death, you know, is the fallout, you know, he leaves family, parents behind, which is, you know, a terrible thing that, you know, the kid goes before the parents. Yeah. You know, it's not the way it's supposed to happen. Um, so, you know, all around it was a big tragedy. I have a lot of fun and fun memories of Mac and, you know, good conversations with him, which I'll always have. Um, but, you know, there's so much more you wish you had a chance to say to someone you know, conversations, hanging out, that's not going to happen. But, you know, that that's always the case, unfortunately, with sudden death. Yeah. Greg? Nick said it all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly what Nick said. And for me personally, um, the, the conversations I had with Mac, those, those three- and four-hour conversations that Nick's talking about, I got so many excited about so many things and about so many ideas and not just paranormal things but all kinds of other things too i mean he was he was considered somebody who wrote on the the future on uh on uh on you know he was a good science fiction writer he had his finger in a lot of areas that a lot of people that are into anomalies don't um you know i can't think of anybody else that was that that combined all those different areas the way that Mac did, and all those areas spoke to each other. I mean, I I talked to him quite a bit about William S. Burroughs, who's a you know a favorite writer, or well was a favorite writer of ours, and a lot of the stuff that he talked about, and a lot of the themes in his literature had a really strong bearing on Fortean subjects and on UFOs, and of course 
Burroughs was interested in UFOs. He went to Whitley Strieber's cabin, I think, twice to try and get uh, some sort of experience, which didn't happen. But um, in the midst of all these conversations, I came up with all kinds of great ideas, and some of them went up on UFO Mystic, and some of the stuff we talked about went up on Post-Tuban Blues, Max site. If there was something interesting he thought that, I, that, that would help me, he would, you know, pass it along to me. And, you know, he wouldn't say, you know, I want to be involved in this or give me any credit or anything like that. He would just say, hey, this might work with something you're working with. And, you know, send me something or email me an image or something like that. Yeah. You know, he even, I think Nick mentioned this in another interview, he even had a site called Things That Look Like UFOs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I remember that, yeah. Pictures of things that looked like flying saucers <laughs> and Nick's a pool cleaner that looked like an Adamski saucer. And, you know, so, and the, so he had this sense of humor, too, which is, I think, lacking in a lot of people that are in the subject matter. And just so inquisitive in so many different areas that it's 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 a big loss. And I think that uh, having read most of his books now, the forthcoming one, um, it's exactly what I thought it would be, which is sort of the next step, a next generation of of, of John Keel, or or somebody like Greg Little, if anybody knows who that who that author is, um, pushing it into the 21st century and you know, weaving in themes uh, like I just talked about from literature and psychology and science fiction and uh, futurism and other areas of Fortiana. I mean, it's specifically about UFOs, but it goes into so many other areas. And um, if he was going to hit the big time, which I think he was in, in a certain way, I was hoping that, you know, he would be the cheerleader for the stuff that we're always talking about, this different way of looking at things, this this uh, non-dogmatic uh, approach where you play with an idea and see how much merit it has before you move on to another one and don't stick with that one because invariably it's going to be, you know, it's, and in some ways it's going to be wrong and make you look stupid if you stick with it. And he never did that. I mean, he just... He, he would go from subject to subject and, and make an incredibly incisive, you know, commentary on it, then move on to the next one. And, you know, it was all part of his uh, his, his universe, I guess you want to call it, um, his viewpoint on these things. And it, it, it was it was wonderful, fascinating, and, and, and fun to watch. And I was so lucky to be, you know, close enough to it that I could, you know, call him up and just say, hey, Mac, what do you think of this? I mean, that's what I wanted to do when I started writing about UFOs is find an author that I thought interested, and Paul Kimball introduced us, uh, but find people like this and be able to ask them personally some question that was really, you know, uh, intriguing me about their work or something that they knew about. And, and I was able to do that with Mac to the point where, you know, we became friends and talked about far more things than UFOs and and, and Bigfoot and all that. Yeah. And yeah, he'll 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 be missed, and I think uh, people realize that. Oh yeah, and absolutely. I hope they do. Maybe maybe they will more when the book comes out, uh, which should be when is it, Nick? In the spring sometime? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure when, but I think sort of early spring, something like that. Yeah. All the crypto terrestrials, and I think there's a subtitle, but I can't remember it. Yeah, a couple of things just to make note of uh, from what you guys were talking about regarding Mac. Definitely. I did feel he engendered a sense of excitement in a lot of people, and you could kind of feel that after his passing, just in the sheer outpouring of reaction from all different 
various corners of the web of people who were tremendously influenced by him and were huge fans of his stuff. Um, and you can tell just how much they were excited about his stuff, that, that they were so profoundly affected by his loss. And uh, it sort of is an interesting sort of look at the, the whole way the Internet has become the UFO community now, where, you know, Mac really was so prolific online and, and the outpouring of grief was so widespread online. It was like this, the community really is online now. Um, and I, I kind of felt that, uh, looking at the reactions and reading, you know, the, uh, the reactions to Max passing. And you can definitely feel a huge void in the field in the last, uh, two and a half months since Mac passed away, uh, online. It's just, well, I know. It's selfish just, about it. might be part of the reason why I haven't been writing too much. It, it might be fallout from that. It's just that I... I felt like there were so, the last few months that we've thrown to, back and forth so many ideas. We were we were even planning to do a, a write something together, and it it just feels like that part just got you know the, the rug got pulled out from under me with him not being around. And I I it, it I think it it take me longer than I think it would to um, to readjust. I guess thought it would. I mean, yeah. Anything else to add, Nick, or should we move to the next uh, point here? Well, yeah, I mean, ju just to touch on the one point that, that Greg mentioned, the fact that, you know, I think when Mac's book is published, you know, never mind the fact that he was extremely well regarded within the world of esoterica on the Internet, I think when his new book, The Crypto Terrestrials, is published and people get to read it, which I hope they will, you know, because it does offer a valuable insight and an alternative view to much of the whole UFO subject. Um, I hope people will realize what a, you know, sort of a driving force I'm sure he would have come, become, you know, kind of like someone along the lines of a valet or a keel, you know, in terms of thinking outside the box and possibly, you know, even in terms of when he was 65 or whatever, you know, overall influence and sheer scale of, you know, the mark he'd left on the subject, but at least, you know, he will have this lasting mark with the new book anyway, which, you know, is better than nothing. So. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm glad that we got that out mm -hmm. there because otherwise uh, we would have been left wondering. Well, we're always yeah. going to be wondering what could have been, but at yeah. least we have a small taste of uh, exactly. of that. Well, uh, we thought the book would be thrown out or lost or something like that till till we found out that uh, uh, Patrick had gotten in touch with Matt's mother and that they had found the the manuscript on his computer and the printed out one with the handwritten notes on it and all that. So it's, it's, it, you know, there was a slightly close shave with where we didn't know if the book was even going to come out for a few days. I really hate to even say this or ask this, but maybe we can put this to rest. Cause I know there's still some people in some circles that want to imply nefarious reasons for Max passing. Are we, are we pretty safely, uh, of the idea and belief that that it was just a natural, that it was just a natural death, and there wasn't anything nefarious involved. Yes. Yeah. Greg, yeah. Um, there's something I want to ask his mother, but uh, I, I, you know, I'm fairly certain that it was, yeah, it was uh, stuff that had been going, health problems that he had had that he didn't think were that that major, but I guess turned out were. I mean, that happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of that myself, so. You know, you just sort of shrug it off and 
figure it's a one-day thing, and then next thing you know, you know, something bad happens. Mm. All right, well, we'll move to the next point uh, in the list here. We're really close to wrapping up 09. Uh, that's just the cancellation of UFO Hunters on uh, the History Channel. It seemed like I was a big fan, not necessarily of the show itself, but just that they had a show, and I'm of the opinion that a rising tide lifts all ships. Um, so the cancellation of UFO Hunters kind of put a damper on that. I don't know if I necessarily subscribed to any conspiratorial angle that it was silenced or something like that. I'm afraid it probably was a result of some kind of TV industry thing, budgetary type uh, thing. Um, but does it say anything to you guys about the popularity of UFOs in that, you know, they got a big show finally and then it kind of fizzled out after a year? Well, you know, I mean, I've done a lot of TV stuff and pilots and, you know, for one-off documentary, that sort of thing. And any, any of these are cutthroat business. You know, they could have had a decent-sized audience. I don't know. But, I mean, you know, I've done shows for other channels, for example, where I know they've been cancelled after one or two seasons, purely and simply because the ratings have dropped by, you know, half a million or whatever. Not a drastic drop. But, you know, it's enough to where they cancel them and they go on to the next thing. And if that doesn't work, they go on to the next thing. You know, you see... 30-minute comedy shows, at, you know, on the primetime channels at 7 o'clock, and they come and go all the time. And I think UFO Hunter's similar situation, that, you know, a show runs its course for whatever purpose, whatever reason, I mean, they go on to the next one. Yes. It's just how the industry works. Whatever's in the public eye, whichever gets the most viewers, is the one that survives. Greg, what do you have to say? Anything? Sort of along those same lines. I was thinking when Nick was talking about how the show survives and how much audience it has, I think it's a bit like the publishing industry, um, or how the publishing industry used to be until recently. Um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books are published, and two or three of those, if the publisher's really lucky, will be a big blockbuster, but most of them aren't. So if, there, if you don't have that blockbuster, if the half thinking hasn't, hasn't established itself with a huge audience and a growing audience um, and the ad revenue to go with it, you know, let's put our resources into something else that becomes that blockbuster. They don't care whether it's UFOs or what. Yeah. All they care about is, is having that blockbuster that really carries their network for quite a while, you know, as, as long as it can. And only, only a few shows can do that. And unfortunately, UFO Hunters wasn't it. The other, the other thing about UFO Hunters is if it, if it was shut down by some nefarious uh, uh, organization because it got too close to the truth, and that organization is probably doesn't know what they're doing because I, don't, I didn't see anything on that show that got any closer to any kind of UFO truth that I could see. All it was was, um, you know, they were trying to, look at certain cases, old ones and new ones, and see if they could get any more out of them or prove anything that hadn't been proven before or see something that hadn't been seen before, which they did in a few cases. But, you know, no, nowhere nowhere to the point where it's going to scare anybody that's holding any secret, I think. Yeah, exactly. I think it also kind of speaks to the difficulty of doing a UFO show in general, just because there's so many ways you can do it, I guess. It's always sort of like... Specific case, highlight it, talk to some experts, that's it. That's the show. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, with, they already have so many shows that maybe it was just too much 
of a rehash of all the other shows. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I guess so. The, the, a secret to doing something that's that's big like that is either it comes out of left field, nobody expected it would be such a big deal and a big hit, or, which is the formula, you do something everybody else has done and you do it in a novel way that nobody's seen before. Now, UFO Hunters didn't do that. They did. They did. They did everything in the way that people had seen before. Yet they they managed to cover some new ground. So I think that's why they they weren't picked up and didn't become popular. Because whatever that twist is that people are looking for, um, they they didn't have it. Yeah, I think they tried the twist with the whole scientific evaluation type thing, but it just didn't really. Well, I guess you know, have you have you done a scientific evaluation of all these different UFO cases, and you never actually come to the breakthrough? Uh, of the UFO. You know, it's not amenable to scientific scrutiny. That's another reason why it doesn't work so well with having science look at it. Yeah. Because the only far you can go with the science. Exactly. And if they're going to use science, they're going to come to the conclusion that there's no conclusion using a scientific methodology. The only conclusion they can come to, which is which I agree with, is is something's going on. <laughs> That's not always explainable with conventional means. Exactly, yeah. All right, we only got three stories left here in, in 09, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the decade, uh, but we'll also wrap up 09. And we, we can almost kind of gloss past this one. It's like the same story as last year. This time around, mid-November, Vatican endorses aliens. Not necessarily UFOs, but just aliens in general. Um, you know, we covered this story almost point for point last year on the year in review and joked uh, at that time that this is a recurring annual story. Mm -hmm. So we almost don't, you know, folks, go back and listen to the 08 year in review if you want to hear our take on that, because it seems like it's just more of the same uh, from the Vatican. And I'm not sure who, I, oh, Stan Friedman said, maybe they're just trying to, you know, avoid a Copernicus-type situation here where they're they're sort of like leaving the door open so they don't look foolish down the line. That. Maybe the only thing I can consider, because I'm not a big fan that, of, of the belief that they're a part of some kind of disclosure movement. So I think we can kind of leave that by the wayside, unless either of you guys have anything to say about the Vatican uh, endorsing aliens. No, I mean, all I would say is that at the end of the day, it may be the Vatican, it may be a big organization, but it's still just an opinion. Right. You know, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't change our knowledge of the subject. And my comment is... Uh, Oh boy, one huge, huge belief system based pro, pro, based solely on belief is is shoring up another belief system that's very tiny, based solely on belief. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. All right. Um, the other one, uh, the next story here was uh, one of the pretty big stories I think of the year, happened right towards the end of the year, and that's the MOD UFO desk closing. Now, I had kind of heard that the writing was on the wall for that when we had Nick Pope on like two years ago. He said they were going to close it soon. So it didn't come as a huge surprise to me, but I was kind of surprised by the media coverage of the event and how, you know, they made a pretty big deal about them closing the UFO desk. But I know Nick's made some really salient points about this and just that it just means they're not collecting public UFO reports. Um, that doesn't mean they're not investigating UFOs anymore. It's just, you know, they – Kind of to throw back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, they were expecting a record number of reports that year, and it probably just got to the point where they didn't want to deal with all this stuff anymore. Um, but, Nick, you're a native U.K. guy, so what's your take on, on the whole MOD UFO desk closing? Well, there's, there's, two, there's two important factors to address, I think, uh, Tim. The, the main one, 
of course, is that, you know, that this issue of what is it exactly that the MOD is stopping doing. You know, say, for example, any Air Force base or military base in the UK that has radar capabilities, if it picks up something on its scopes that when they put an identification call out to it doesn't respond and they send planes up and whatever it is exit the area at high speed before the planes intercept it, by definition, that was a UFO. And they investigated it, and they sent planes up, and they filed a report on it. Now, it could have been, you know, a Russian spy plane, a Chinese spy plane, who knows what, what it was. Um, but if an investigation was undertaken, by definition, that was a case involving an unidentified flying object. So the idea that the British military are just avoiding ever again investigating anything that enters their airspace that's unidentified is, is stupid. You know, what they're actually saying is they don't want Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones sending in a report saying, I think I was abducted by, you know, six-eyed creatures from Proxima Centauri or whatever. Yeah. You know, that's what they don't want to be bothered with. Now, the other thing is how you view the Ministry of Defense's involvement in the UFO subject. I think because it's been called a UFO desk, it has this imagery of almost like some Project Blue Book X-Files type project, which it wasn't. You know, Nick Pope openly admits that he his time in that office took approximately 20% of his time. He worked a five-day week, so in other words, it was equated to approximately a day's work. He openly admits, as do all his predecessors and successors, that the office never had a budget to actually leave the office. You know, they didn't have a budget to jump on the train to travel, say, to Scotland to investigate a case. What would happen is that people would send reports in, and Nick and the people who came after him or before him would share those reports with radar specialists or people whose job it was to know, you know, which satellites were going over at whatever time, astronomical experts, and they would say, thanks for the report, we've you know, we've tied it in with the Russian satellite ABC123 or whatever, and then Nick or whoever would write back to the relevant person. You know, there was no running around the country like some sort of Fox Mulder type situation. Yeah. <laughs> it was very much a, a very low-key office where only 20% of the person's time was applied to that job. So, you know, that's something to bear in mind as well. They're actually shutting down something that they really didn't take that much notice of in the first place. Now, of course, some people would say that, well, that's because, you know, there's a bigger MJ-12 type project going on somewhere else. Now, you know, it's like trying to prove a negative. You know, I can't say that that isn't the case. But it's in terms of what they're shutting down, it's not like they're shutting down a wing of the Pentagon or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's not. It's something, it's almost like a little hobby office type thing. Fair enough. Greg, do you have anything to chime in on uh, the MOD UFO thing? No, I mean, I didn't know all that about the MOD I office. I, it, it just sounds like any other um, government desk on UFO stuff where they, you know, this is... I think it was Kit Green of the CIA ran that desk for a while, and they didn't go out and investigate anything. They just collated information. Yeah. And that's all that uh, anyone does anymore, And there be, as far as we know. And there may be a hint there. You know, if they're not going out investigating anything anymore, must mean that they don't think there's anything worth investigating. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not because it's not there, but because they're not going to get anything out of it. 
You know, what are we going to do? And increase our database. That's about it. With a, with another report that resembles a whole bunch of other reports. That's not to say whether there's something amazing happens once in a while and they, somebody does take notice of it, but I don't think we're going to hear about it ever, if not for quite a while. Yeah. Okay, I guess we can uh, leave that one behind. The final story of the year was sort of another non-event in a way. Uh, I don't know if there's even much to make of it, and that's just the Norway spiral thing. But I don't know if there's even anything to say about the Norway spiral because it got debunked right away. And Greg, Well, it certainly wasn't an out-of-control rocket. You're skeptical of the out-of-control rocket story? Yeah. It'd have to be a pretty damn well steered out-of-control rocket to make such a perfect spiral with it. With the, uh, all, I could be wrong. But, um, you know, when something is going out of control, it eventually, it doesn't do it, and I've never seen this before or heard about it, where something's out of control where, you know, it's getting, it's, it's only got one engine going or something like that. Yeah, it's going to start to turn spirals. But not such perfect ones. Yeah, yeah. It did seem a little strange, but I... I have a feeling that, like we're never going to find out exactly what was going on there. Um, I think it was some a test of something, and it was a test of something that people were supposed to notice and was put down as a UFO thing and then as a, a, a rocket gone out of control, at least publicly. I think it was a test of something else or, or, or a demonstration of something else, um, not an out-of-control rocket. Interesting. Um, maybe Maybe a laser technology or... I don't know what it is, but it, it looked too it looked too good to be something that was a mistake. Exactly. To me. Yeah. Be wrong, but that's my take on it so far. Yeah, that, I'm kind of in line with that too. But skeptical of any UFO connection, just because it seemed more like a light phenomenon than a a craft, if you will. So I don't know. Yeah. Nick, do you have anything to add to the Norway spiral? Um, you know, I think I would go along with what uh, Greg said. I don't personally think it was a UFO. But, you know, I, I wouldn't fall down in a flat faint if it turned out that, you know, the, the UFO story was a cover for a more clandestine secret experiment. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, who knows what, what was being tested. Maybe some sort of psychological response was what was needed, you know. this You can go down the real conspiratorial path of, you know, the idea of some sort of faked false flag alien invasion you know to the whole some people suggest you know the whole new world uh, new world order type scenario of well how do you unite the world or take control you create a false threat yeah could somebody be planning with you know going to the ultimate extent of faking some remarkable phenomena in the sky where we need to have more, even more of our rights taken away from us to protect us from it you know I'm you know I'm speculating but who knows what's going on in the way the world is today? Exactly. Well, we what's already going through some boffin's mind. You know, can we actually influence the public in this fashion? So. Interesting. Yeah. I think it was definitely meant to be seen by a lot of people, and it was specifically meant to be seen by a lot of people, or we wouldn't have seen it. Exactly. Yeah. All right. That kind of closes the book on 2009. As I said, not too much really worth getting excited about, even though we talked for a couple hours here on all the different stories. Where do you see things headed, I guess, in 2010? My, I'm going to make a prediction here, although I was kind of wrong last year in my prediction that archaeological finds would be the big thing of 2009. It seems like nothing really broke out of the pack in, in 2009, but a lot of little things sort of gained momentum. Um, but I'm fearing that 2010 will begin a cycle of sort of this 2012 thing, 
and in turn, like all different areas sort of latching on to 2012 and, and sort of fitting that into their agenda, whether it's conspiracy people or UFO people or, you know, people that say that Bigfoot's interdimensional, so he's going to be revealed on 2012. I have a feeling that somehow that 2012 will find its way into everything uh, over the next three years. But I, I don't see anything as far as fields go that look to be on the cusp of, you know, a breakthrough. Okay? And the ghost hunting thing still keeps plowing along uh, as the premier field, unfortunately, for uh, Esoterica. And 9-11 still keeps petering out. So, I don't know. Uh, I'm not seeing any sort of uh, ever flow right now to Esoterica. But maybe you guys uh, have a feeling on what might be coming up in 2010. So, uh, we'll do some sort of vague predictions. Do you have any sort of feeling about 2010, Greg? Well, exactly what you had. <laughs> Separate publishers asked me to write books on 2010, and I said, no. I said, well, why not? I said, because it's, or 2012. I said, because it's not that interesting to me. The reason it's not interesting to me, and it's probably because of, you know, well, everything's because of a prejudice. But my prejudice, prejudice is that, um, that, uh, People will read into what they want to read into something that's not as specific as they want it to be, um, and it's all based apparently on the Mayan calendar. Now everybody said Nostradamus was right years, and you know that was up to the 70s and 80s. Now you don't hear about Nostradamus anymore because nothing he said is really you know is really relevant anymore, particularly that I can tell or I've heard of. So now it's switched over to the 2012 thing. Yeah. Now there's nothing to it that I don't know about, but I haven't I haven't read, heard, or talked to anybody about any conclusive evidence that anything specific is going to happen on that day. And besides, every time somebody makes in my lifetime, as far as I know, anytime anybody makes a specific prediction about a specific time, you know, nineteen hundred ninety nine times out of a hundred, or maybe more than that, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Exactly. What the B is just a kind of a change in people's thinking or something like that. Not not where the world's going to end or it's going to start to end or what. You know, I could be wrong and, you know, that this is, you know, something big will happen that day. But I'm not running out of town like I did on, two, uh, on January, I mean, on uh, December 31st of 2000, uh, of 1999. Yeah. I actually left town because I didn't want to be around when people started going nuts and doing weird things and no, freaking no. out. It happened. But, you know, I was I, I visited some friends in Malibu overnight because that's reasonably outside of the outside of the uh, <laughs> L.A. Yeah. But, no, I, I don't really see any trend going anywhere. It's probably going to be something that's a, a, a case or something that comes out of left field that nobody expects that, that captures people's imagination for a while. Because I think the real change, the real change in the paranormal and UFO stuff, and I've said this over and over, is going to come from outside the field in something that's not even related to UFO study, or maybe just tangentially. Because it would have to do with people's perceptions or a scientific discovery or um, something, some scientific discovery that explains but does not diminish religion if, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think those kind of things will be something that will happen more and more in our lifetime, but it will be so subtle that we won't even notice it until suddenly everybody's going to say, well, of course that's what UFOs are. They're a manifestation of blah, 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 you know? Yeah. 
Um, and it's like I said, it's it comes from breakthroughs in in science and psychology and sociology and uh, things like that. So this stuff that uh, in the way that we look at things that are quote unquote outside of us. Um, and I don't know if that's going to happen next year, but I think a, a little increment, little increment may. Um, I'm sorry, it's it's so it's so vague. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a person that makes predictions personally, except for you know when somebody says um, the uh, disclosure is going to happen on this date, and, and I predict that it won't. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Nick? Anything on the horizon for 2010 that you think uh, bears? mentioning or that you have seen on your radar that piques your interest? Well, you know, I think the biggest problem with the UFO subject, Tim, is the fact that it's unpredictable. And so when something's massively unpredictable and doesn't act in the way that we, I guess, expect it to or the military expects it to, then trying to make any sort of prediction is sort of a fraught task at the best of times. You know, it's this whole thing about, well, you know, you look at science fiction, in science fiction, the aliens either land on the White House lawn in kind of a debut, stood still scenario, or they attack us, like in Independence Day. Yeah. The real UFO phenomenon does neither, and it doesn't actually tell us what it is doing. You know, we, we kind of get stage-managed productions of, you know, endless reruns of abductions and soil samples being taken, you know, like a, like a stage-managed show rather than an open presentation. So in other words, I don't feel that we have enough answers even after 60 years to what's going on to accurately predict what, you know, the next year, next 10 years or the next 60 years are going to bring other than the fact that the phenomenon is going to continue to perplex us as it has done previously. Now, you know, I wouldn't want people to think, and I know Greg wouldn't, that, you know, we've kind of dissed most of the cases we've discussed this year and kind of complained that there's not much going on. You know, that's that's not because we're jaded or tired of the subject. I think both me and Greg are as enthusiastic about it as we've always been. But the fact is, if nothing's going on, then nothing's going on. You know, there are certain people in the subject who will try and elevate it all the time. Yeah because it's a promotional tool for themselves. But if nothing's going on, be honest and say nothing's going on. Um, next year, something fantastic could happen straight out of, you know, left field that we just didn't realize. Or it could be much the same this year, or even worse. You know, we could be just tapping our fingers at the end of the phone next year, <laughs> you know, with nothing to say. Yeah. Um, but if that happens, then then that's, that's how it goes. You know, that, that's, that's just how it goes. And, you know, ufology as a subject and the, the phenomena itself is constantly changing. You know, it's mutated endlessly over 60 years. So next year could bring something. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, that's, that's just how it is. I'm not going to make any prediction that something's going to happen, but I predict that we'll be talking about it next year probably, barring some huge disaster. But <laughs> yeah. whether we'll be talking significantly different to now, I'd probably suspect we won't be. Yeah. Well, you know, 07 was a really big, good year for the subject, and then, you know, the last couple of years have been kind of down. So like you said, it could be, you never know. You never know what the new year will bring. Yeah. All right. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit here about the end of the decade, and I already got an email from someone who said, uh, former guest, actually, Jason Offit, who uh, I think is friends 
I don't know if you guys are familiar yeah, with Jason or not. Yeah, he's he's a good guy and a, and a very astute researcher. And he says you <laughs> you mentioned 2010 being a new decade. Nope. People freaked out at the end of the year 2000 being the beginning of something, but it wasn't. It was the end. The decade is 2001 to 2010, not 2000 to 2009. <laughs> well, since everybody else is doing decade in reviews, I think it's fair and okay for us to do one. Um, and when you think about when they do those, like I love the 80s shows, they always start from 80 to 89. So we're going to just go with the way that the, <laughs> the non, the, the rest Things of Things are arbitrary. Yeah. yeah. We'll just go with the way everything else seems to be. And, and uh, now you guys have been in this a lot longer than I have. So you've kind of already seen the end of a decade, at least one, probably two, um, in Esoterica to at least give it some kind of, um, you know, perspective. This is the, this is my first end of the decade uh, in Esoterica. So, you know, I don't really have too much to compare it to. And I wasn't really in the scene back in the 80s or 90s. So even then, uh, and there's no, you can't like go back to the internet and look for stuff from like, you know, the year in review for 89 or the decade in review for the 80s. Like they don't have that anywhere online. So it's kind of been hard to really sort of get a perspective on how things have changed. But there have been a lot of big changes in the last 10 years. And since you guys are known primarily for the UFO field, we'll start with that and just talk a little bit about my take on the last 10 years seems to be that I feel like the UFO field sort of stopped a little bit, caught its breath, and began sort of a reevaluation of a lot of stuff from the previous uh, several decades. And just to tie it into you guys, like Nick has the contactees book, and Greg did uh, Project Beta, so it feels like, and then of course we have the whole interdimensional thing uh, really picking up steam this decade. Uh, so it feels like a lot of wheel spinning in general for ufology in the sense that uh, what's going on here in the here and now really didn't seem to be too much uh, going on, but also a reevaluation of a lot of stuff. Um, what do you what do you guys think of that? Is that uh, on point? Greg, do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. What do you think, oh, Greg? Okay. Well, see, a lot of times I've been waiting for Nick. I was like, oh, good, Nick brought that up. Now I can think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, from my perspective, I, I've i been reading, you know, paranormal books. And, uh, you know, I, I used to read books when I was a kid on everything. I mean, on ghosts, on Bigfoot, on Loch Ness Monster, on, on strange phenomena, on, you know, the stuff that's in the source book things, on, you know, uh, strange facts of nature and um out of place, already archaeological um, finds, things like that. Yeah. Um, and that was in one. Well, I reveal my um, my sort of age. That was in the seventies. So I didn't really have a perspective on the seventies. Then in the eighties, I didn't. I wasn't really interested in the subject at all because you know there was drugs and girls and cars and stuff. <laughs> so near the end of the eighties, eighty-eight or 87, actually, I met Bill Moore. And suddenly, I, and, and I read an article by Robert Anton Wilson and a few other things that kind of popped me right back into the subject again. So my first exposure to the subject really was, uh, in a big way, was going to the 1989 MUFON conference where Bill Moore said, I'm, you know, I, I did his, um, I've been working with the government speech. So... And, you know, since then I looked at it, um, you know, with the benefit of that hindsight, it seems like the, the 70s were kind of the 
it was kind of dead for ufology, um, at least in a public way, until Close Encounters came out in 77. And that actually, that actually woke the field up again, I believe. And in the 80s, it seemed, and in the end of the 70s and the early 80s, um, abductions came into uh, prominence because of um, Bud Hopkins' book, yeah. uh, Intru- um, not Intruders, was uh, Missing Time, yeah. which was 88, I mean, 78 or 9, something like that. And that kind of ran its course through the 80s. And then underneath all that, that people didn't realize was the government thing going on, which was, um, you know, that, that was Bill Moore's uh, area. Mm-hmm. And a few other people that were into it, too, at the time that were kind of mining that, that uh, source. And then near the end of the 80s, all that, uh, that be, you know, the 90s are kind of the, the uh, decade, to my mind, was the decade of the, you know, government... Uh, government disclosure thing, or what does the government know? A lot of uh, UFO conferences around that time were very interested in that, because MJ-12 documents had come out in the in the uh, mid-80s. Um, abductions were kind of, were still there, but most of the conferences, people were talking about what does the government know. It wasn't really a, uh, a question of disclosure. It's like, well, we're not going to get the disclosure, so let's see if we can have it bled out by FOIAing the government to death and getting uh, insiders to talk, etc. Yeah, and, you know, um, and there was also there was also a lot of uh, conspiracy stuff really blossomed then in in, in relation to the UFO subject, um, mainly I think because of Bill Moore's thing in '89, and then uh, as the '90s closed out, um, I think the disclosure people started moving around a bit, and I think it grew out of that uh, that uh, what does the government know thing to the point where a lot of people decided to get active with it and say, well, why don't we force the government to tell us what it knows, which I still think is completely wrong tack to take, but I think that's that subject has, has dominated ufology since in the last five or six years is the disclosure thing. I was going to say for better or worse, but there is no better. It's just worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's one of the other points I had here is exopolitics becomes a viable side branch of ufology. Um, and I think, the, I think the next one, if we're talking about predictions, will be what comes out in Mac's book. People that have come into it like you in the last few years give themselves a really fast refresher course, not refresher course, but a really fast course in UFOs history. Um, and you know, the intelligent ones among them decide to look at it in a different way and see where that takes them without a dogmatic attachment to whatever, you know, whatever theory they're pursuing at the time, which I think I see more and more people doing and less and less argument about except from older people or, or you know, dumb people that like to be stuck in belief systems. Now, that's my, that's, that's my hopeful prediction, you know. I, I hope that happens, and I, I wish it would. I mean, that's something that I... Uh, I've been trying to push to anybody that'll listen, and I, th- I think Nick has. Mac was doing the same thing. Um, I can't think of. There's got to be other people doing that. I, I, I can't think of any right now, but they don't really speak at conferences or anything because they're people want to see and hear UFO porno. They don't want to talk about theorizing. So maybe maybe we'll look at the underground rise of, um, of theoretical ufology. I hope. Yeah, as something that's sort of growing out of the end of the decade. Yeah, I mean, people are very down on. Well, you didn't, you know, is this based on? Did you go out and talk to people? And it's like, why do? Why does anybody have to go out and talk to somebody again? 
unless exactly. it's something really out of the ordinary, because they're going to get the same stories. And what's that going to do? All it is is just, a, you know, just masturbation, you know? Like, <laughs> good, we've got, we've got, I, got, I went out and talked to a witness, and he told me something, and I wrote it down, and we're going to correlate it with the database. Fine. Um, James Carrion's trying to do that with MUFON, and in a way where they take everything they've ever gotten and look for patterns in the way that they haven't looked for them before, which I think is really exciting, and um, I'd like to hear when something comes out of that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's there's no problem with being a quote-unquote theoretical ufologist, I don't think, because what kind of field research can you do? Exactly. You can't really. You know, look, look at it. Be a stati statistician, maybe. Look at the data. Look for patterns. Look for patterns in the way that nobody else has looked for them before. Um, maybe also consider people's, and I've said this before, people's um, subjective descriptions of what happened to them, not just the objective, because people used to, they never ask, how did that make you feel or how did it change your life? They always ask you, what did you see? How high did it go? How long was it there? Because yeah. a lot of people are profoundly affected in, a, in deep ways by having some sighting of something they can't explain. And I think that's an important part of the equation that's been ignored so far. When you booked the hotel, did you book it for the Millennium New Year? As a matter of fact, I did. Oh, that's interesting, because as everyone knows, since there was no year zero, the Millennium doesn't begin until the year 2001, which would make your party one year late, and thus quite lame. <laughs> oh. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Think again, Longshanks. <laughs> I started planning this in 1978. I put a deposit down on that revolving restaurant that overlooks Times Square, and I booked Christopher Cross. In summation, I guess I would say, just to sort of tie in what you've been saying here. So you think like the, the arts would be sort of like the emergence of exopolitics and then you know, side by side with that sort of uh, more acceptance and eventual embracing of this theoretical ufology uh, sort of towards the end of the decade. Yeah, I, I, I would hope so. I mean, a lot of things, there are many things that go on in every community and in the public um, un, under the radar. And if there's some viability to them, you hope, they emerge from out of under the radar and people notice it and uh, they assume prominence. Now, if there are more people looking at looking for patterns and looking at the data and and making educated guesses about it and seeing if if those apply across you know whatever series of sightings or social strata or you know years or whatever, I don't think that's been done before. And I think that if that bears some fruit, it um, it will. It, it, it will emerge as something that's viable that people will be, people will be interested in. And what's even better is if there's a spokesman, spokespeople for it that can explain it in a simple way to, to a lot of people. Mac was very good at that. All right, Nick, what do you, what do you think, I guess, just sort of uh, in a broad perspective, what, you know, if you were going to tell the story of the aughts here in ufology, uh, what, what do you think, you know, was the, the, the big story or the trends, I guess you could say, of uh, how things evolved these last 10 years? Oh, you know what he said. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Nick was going to say something I totally forgot that's very important. Well, yeah, um, I mean, joking aside, yeah, I mean, I actually agree with a lot of what Greg just said. You know, I think, um, you know, for people who, I guess, the end of this decade is the end of their their first decade within ufology, you know, it's going to be 
a memorable one to them. You know, I don't want to come across sounding jaded or anything like that. But uh, for me, this decade has been, I guess, one that's been typified by not a great deal at all. <laughs> um, you know, there's, if you look back at, for example, whether you, regardless of what people think about different aspects of the subject, you know, Greg sort of hit the nail on the head pointing out that the 80s were sort of defined by abductions. You know, you had the whole Bill Moore thing, the MJ-12 documents surfacing. Um, you know, the, the end of the 70s, ironically, as the 70s started to close, you had this whole swathe of FOIA documents surfacing and things like that. You know, the 60s, you could argue that, although I obviously wasn't around doing UFO research in the 60s, but you could argue that the 60s, UFO field got a boost at the very end of the decade by the fact that we had the moon landings, you know, that kind of opened that, you know, the idea that, well, if we're going somewhere else, maybe someone's coming here. Yeah. Now, if you look at that, what happened at the end of the 60s, 70s, how we define the 80s, you know, the 90s, etc., you know, 90s were sort of also dominated to a large extent by abductions, flying triangles. Today, this decade, yeah. well, it's... I don't really, other than exopolitics, you know, and disclosure, I don't really see this decade actually having something that is really defining it, where we're really going to be talking about it still 10 or 20 years on. Yeah. You know, I think disclosure, in theory, is great. In practice, I think it's kind of naive. You know, it's just my own personal viewpoint. I don't, unfortunately, think it can instill that much change. The UFO intelligences aren't going to listen because there's no evidence they've ever listened. You know, they're doing whatever they're doing. Uh, or they may have listened, but they're not, you know, acting on our urges or whatever. Um, and, you know, I think it's naive to think that by, you know, asking the White House or the government or demanding they change something or do something, that they'll actually do it because the public wants it done. You know, that's not how government works. Government works by fucking over the public after they've got elected. Yeah. You know, that's what governments do. Give me your money, give me your vote, and then fuck off. That's, <laughs> that's how it works. So, you know, in that respect, I, I have to be honest, you know, you, I, you know, I know you want me to be honest, and I will be honest. I don't see too much having gone on this decade that I can really say, wow, you know, there was this decade's going to be defined by this or that. It's it's just kind of more, on, more of the same, but on a lesser scale, less lesser good quality reports, more and more groups closing down, a fractured scene, certainly not like a golden age or even a silver age of ufology. Now, that could all change, you know. In the next 10 years, we could have a complete turnaround, and I would never say that won't happen. To me, the, the, this decade will be typified by a lot of things I just forgot about <laughs> when it comes to UFOs. Hey, you know, I'm not saying that. I don't want people to think I'm taking a downcast approach or I'm tired and jaded with it all and fed up. I'm not. It's the exact opposite. But I have to be honest, to me, not a lot went on yeah. that is going to help answer the questions as to what's going on. Exactly, yeah. That's just how I see it. So. I mean, of course, the other big thing I forgot, of course, was, you know, the 90s was dominated, late 80s dominated, and particularly the 90s, by crop circles. You know, that just came out of left field, no pun intended. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like... I just don't see that in this decade. Exactly. Well, I guess that sort of is a good segue to the question of just why do you think the 
of anything, why do you think the exopolitics thing sort of uh, did gain a foothold in the decade? Was it because, you know, people just started to sort of get more active because they wanted the answer because they were tired of, of repeating the same stuff or just that, you know, that they're better organized than the nuts and bolts UFO folks? My personal opinion is that the rise of, whether it's exopolitics or anything in today's ufology, it surfaces because people who've been in it a long time, well, two things. For the people who've been in it in a long time, there's a realization has hit home that they're still in the same position as they were 40 years ago, except for one thing. They have several more filing cabinets of material than they did when they started. Yeah. And that is a stark realization that, hey, you know, 40 years I've been doing this or whatever, how long they've been doing it for, but they don't have any answers, just more data. And then you have, and so they feel the urge, almost like a panic urge, you know, what have I done with my life? It's almost like a panic urge to take a different approach because they're getting desperate. Then you have the people who, and this is a good thing, you know, are new to the subject, they're energetic and enthusiastic, and they want to kind of like kick out the jam, so to speak. And so they present a new approach because, you know, the new God always usurps the old God. That's whether it's rock and roll or whatever it was, whatever it is, that's what happens. Um, but then eventually they become the old God. And there's a realization again that despite bringing in this new paradigm or whatever, they are just like their predecessors. You know, they've got five more filing cabinets than at the beginning. Yeah. So it's all based around trying to find a new approach because the subject defies explanation. And that's exopolitics to me is just the latest in a long line of ways and means of trying to get the answers because purely and simply because we're not getting the answers. Um, Greg, anything to add to that? One thing Nick said, yeah, that was what I was going to say. I think it's born out of a frustration of, well, nothing's happened. Well, let's do it this way. Mm. Right. And the other thing is I don't think the exopolitics movement could have survived 20 years ago. Uh, one, because there were more people that, the, that, that thought that, um, you know, well, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, more people thought that the government was straight with people. Yeah. And that uh, just letting them explain what they should explain was, was what the explanation was, and they have to worry about it. I'm talking about the general public. Um, but, you know, because of our history, starting with, with Vietnam, I guess, I guess in a more public way, all the way up to now, nobody trusts anything the government says anymore. Uh, which seems kind of weird that you would ask the government for the truth about something when you don't trust them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that that by somehow forcing somebody, uh, you know, um, Woodward and Bernstein like to to uh, come out with these deep secrets is 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 going to answer the question. So it's it, I think it was just born out of one desperation and two and. I almost hate to say it, is that somebody wants to make a name for themselves and they figured that this is the way to do it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that's everybody in the exopolitics movement, but some of them that I've talked to, it, it, it seems like that. And I'm not going to name names because I could be wrong, but, um, yeah, well, you know what, that's just in, in any field. You know, somebody will make a big stink about something because they want to be recognized. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and I... I, I, I I, I don't. I hope that hasn't been my motivation about anything. But you know, if you're genuinely interested in something, and you genuinely want an answer, 
and you just happen to be the kind of person that uh, that gets people excited about things and can organize people, then you know that's what'll happen. Whether you know whether your original idea is is, is stupid or not. So I, I think that the the, that the exopolitics thing, the, the disclosure thing, personally, I think it's a dead end for reasons I've mentioned before, which is that I don't think the government has those answers that you're looking for. And if they do, they're not in documents, and they're not, you know, somewhere where somebody's going to say something. You know, that, that brings up this idea that um, I wrote about a couple of months ago. Um, I talked to a couple of people who used to work for um, uh, the government in, in certain classified programs. And they realize, you know, there's certain phrases and things, Nick knows about this, there's certain phrases and things that you say where if somebody is in that world, they know that you know about it, so it's okay to tell you a little bit. And the only thing they said to me, the thing that stuck with me is that if you're involved in the government in any, you know, in any capacity, particularly in intelligence and stuff like that, the minute you tell the truth about anything, you're out. You're out of the club. <laughs> they do not deal in truth. Yeah. They deal in shades of truth and lies, and that's just the way they operate. I mean, you know, ask, asking somebody like that to tell the truth about something is, is, is ridiculous because you're not going to hear what you want to hear, and what you do hear is not going to be, you know, it's probably tangentially related to what you want to hear about, but not in a way that you want or would even probably recognize. So it, it's just, I, I think it's, it's, it's a lot of effort for something that's, that's that. I don't think it's going to bear any kind of fruit in the way that people want it to. Yeah, yeah. Well, thankfully, I think a lot of people are starting to come to that conclusion about the exopolitics thing now. Is well, some of the loudest people like Sala, when they do things like make a prediction about something, it doesn't come true. It, it's, it starts to turn people off in droves, and it should. Yeah, exactly, yeah. One thing a lot of people have talked about is just how the mainstream media has started to be a little more positive about UFOs in the last few years. Would you say that's something that's become sort of uh, an ongoing thing this decade, or is, is that just something that happens every few years in the media every decade? Well, well, my view is I think they actually have begun to take the subject more seriously, uh, or certain certain factors or certain organizations within the media have, and those are you know often the ones that are more influential, the bigger the, the organization or the personality that's talking about it. You know, for example, like the Larry King show, that sort of thing, or Britain's Daily Telegraph, often covering UFOs. And I think, you know, the where it's been taken more seriously, particularly in Britain with the newspapers, is in relation to government files and things like that. Yeah. You know, I think Mr. Smith sees a blue light, you know, always has its place, unfortunately, just in the page of the tabloid newspapers. You know, Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith might have had a really interesting sighting, but... For the tabloids, you know, aliens are landed, little green men flew over New York or London or whatever. Um, that's always going to be there, and that's always been the case. But certainly I think the so-called serious media has picked up more on the fact that government agencies do take the subject seriously and admit, admit all the, the fakes, the garbage, the misidentifications. There actually are a few interesting reports, and I think that's why they've taken an interest I don't see anything conspiratorial behind it, somebody pushing their buttons. I think it's just, as news people, they recognize an interesting story. If a pilot says he or she saw a UFO. So, yeah, I, abs I definitely have noticed that difference probably in the last 15, 10, 10, 15 years. Certainly more so in the last 10, that there's more of a, 
not so much the ridicule factor as they used to be. Yeah. If you talk about any group that's interested in the subject, where there's kind of an, in, you know, there's a lot of people that are very into it and I guess considered insiders in a way that means they're really into it and they know everything that's going on. Um, uh, it seems like the coverage of it, the press coverage of it, is always about a year or two or five behind what's really going on. Yeah. And what really happened a long time ago was that a lot of people took these reports seriously. And, and another um, factor is that I think it helps their ratings when they realize that people want to see something that's serious rather than another mocking uh, story on something. And it also goes along with people's general distrust of authority and the government um, based on, you know, experience over the past 30 or 40 years. It should have been, you know, over the entire <laughs> history of this world and this planet. But, you know, in, in a very short-sighted view, I think people are, are all primed and prepared not to trust the government. So it's uh, it's interesting to them when somebody reports on something that the government may be covering up, even if it's something as, quote-unquote, silly as UFOs. Yeah. The big thing, I think, and it kind of goes to what Nick was saying earlier about how it was sort of a down decade all around for ufology, is that it seems like ufology, the UFO subject, used to be like the A number one paranormal subject out there. And as we close the decade now, it's, I'd say... Well, at, at different points in the decade, let's say, it was a, a distant third behind 9-11 and ghost hunting. So I think that had a lot to do with it uh, in the sense that ufology was displaced finally by other sort of paranormal genres uh, that I don't know necessarily if that had ever happened before that I can think of. Even the crop circles was tied into UFOs, but the ghost hunting and the 9-11 thing, you know, you, unless you really want to get extreme, those weren't tied into UFOs at all. So it seems like ufology may have been hampered a little bit by finally being displaced by other areas of the paranormal scene that became way more popular than UFOs. Well, yeah, I mean, I would agree. But then again, I mean, if you look at the broader picture, you go back 100 years, spiritualism in Victorian times was huge, you know, rapping on tables, that mm -hmm. sort of thing, seances. That, you know, that huge um, phenomenon, you know, just went away. You know, there was in the 1500s, there was a huge cultural belief in fairies. Um, 1970s, um, Atlantis, Bermuda Triangle were huge. Astrology was huge. You know, the 60s, the whole, you know, um, LSD culture and mind expansion. You know, things do go in waves. Um, and again, you know, I think we have sometimes short memories in terms of what's significant and what isn't and you know things things come in and out of fashion um in in relation to paranormal phenomena and you know it's kind of like here today gone later today yeah what do you think of that greg just in general that the ufo subject was you know pushed down the ladder if you will uh in the in the aughts well uh, as both nick and you said i think it's uh it's due to faddish behavior that uh, things are fads. And the other thing is uh, that I thought of when you were talking, both of you, was that uh, ufology, it doesn't really have results. And people really like results very quickly. Yeah. And it's an open question. And for the foreseeable future, it's going to be an open-ended question. You know, spiritualism, you had, you were getting answers right away, whether they were fake or not. You know, who cares? 
ghost hunting, you can go out and look for something, and occasionally it shows up, and it shows up on instruments and all that. That's that's a you know a tangible, um, sometimes immediate response to a query. UFOs don't do that. You just have to you know it just happens once in a while, and and somebody has to come afterwards and 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 pick up the pieces. You can't really test for it. You can't go wait for it. I guess in some cases you can. Hessel and White's. Um, um, people that hung around Stephenville, stuff like that. But as a rule, it doesn't. It's not. Uh, it's not amenable to easy, quick, um, teasing answers that don't really answer the <laughs> don't really answer the question, but sort of point you towards, you know, uh, keeping you interested. The UFO thing. It, it's 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 a kind of a mega problem that that over decades and centuries keeps people interested and um, is called by different things in different eras, and I don't think it's going to go away. And, yes, it'll some big thing will happen and the fab come back or people will get tired of ghost hunting or maybe some big new mystery will come up that you know everybody will be into for a while, like uh, like the, um, uh, what's it, the, the Dan Brown books, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, Nick, you're a cryptozoologist as well as a ufologist. Uh now, Lauren Coleman had sort of remarked to me a while back that it seems like the mainstream started to give a little more respectability and, and uh, coverage to cryptozoology. Would you say that's something that came up this decade, too? Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the reasons why is because, you know, this is one of the positive aspects, I think, of, of reality TV is that cryptozoology lends itself, partic- particularly in the world of entertainment, to to on-screen activity. You know, for example, Greg made a very valid point. Um, well, he made a lot of very valid points. But one, <laughs> one very valid point he made was the fact that, you know, a UFO incident happens and then someone has to go out and investigate it. Uh, you know, whereas ghost hunting, you can stalk the, you know, stake out at the haunted house or whatever. And cryptozoology, you know, if you go to Puerto Rico, hypothetically, looking for the chupacabras, well, you know, you can, as I've done, you can go for the, a couple of weeks and do an expedition because you're in a landlocked environment where this creature is reputedly being seen. You can interview X number of people and hope that it comes back or you're there long enough to go out like on a quick reaction basis to a sighting. And so, you know, same thing with Loch Ness. Loch Ness is a, a, sol- a one, you know, single body of water. You can stake out the loch and and do an expedition there, which again lends itself to good TV, and which also, as a byproduct, then catches people's attention and the media's attention, and and it spirals. UFOs are unpredictable where they're going to turn up. If there is anything in Loch Ness, it's obviously only going to turn up in Loch Ness. Yeah. So that's why I think cryptozoology has had this boost in the last couple of years, because you know, rightly or wrongly, it does lend itself to the world of sort of reality TV, which, which you know, gets picked up on and noticed by the media, who then decide to, oh, that sounds like an interesting person, we'll interview them. And it has that knock-on effect. You know, as Greg rightly pointed out, sort of hanging around, waiting for a UFO to show up when the phenomenon's haphazard at the best of time, really isn't the best way to sort of, you know, get people's attention, so... Yeah, we kind of touched on the explosion of paranormal TV shows, so we kind of don't need to go over that. Uh, another big thing that came out of the decade. Um, how about the whole just the internet boom? I think it changed the face of esoterica. Greg, you're a product of the zine scene with excluded middle. 
you know, how did you see the way the internet changed everything? I think it was wonderful and terrible. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful because um, everybody can communicate immediately and, and examine something in minute detail and get the latest news sometimes from the person that's right there um, or the main researcher or whatever if you have access to them, which is a lot easier online. Uh, and it's terrible because every idiot that, that thinks they know something about UFOs or the paranormal or Bigfoot or whatever can can go online and talk about it. And if they if they say things that sound incredible enough, they get more people listening to them. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm not going to condemn the internet in that for that because the blessing is is good or better than the curse. Um, and that's I think that's another reason why there's been a lot more interest. In the paranormal, than I well, maybe I, there was, and I didn't know about it during the zine thing, because I, I had to communicate with people with phone calls and letters. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how people got along before computers and word processing and all that. You know, it's it's just it's just amazing to me that it, it's still amazing to me that you can have access to all this information, and you know. And everybody said, well, it's a problem because half of it's crap and this and that. It's like, well, if you're stupid, then you're going to get stupid conclusions out of it. But if you know what to look for and you're reasonably intelligent and you're very interested in whatever subject it may be and you've got a, you've got a, you know, a good filtering system, I guess, you can get a lot out of it. And when you get a lot out of it, you know, you enrich yourself. And if you, if you so choose, you can go and do something yourself. You don't have to go up and print a bunch of magazines and sit there and put all the labels on them and send them out to people and worry about distributors and all that. All you have to do is put it up online and immediately you have an audience and you've got some feedback. Yeah. And that, that's, that's great. I mean, I, I think that's wonderful. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do without it. And publishing is changing too. I can't get anybody to publish a book anymore, really, unless it's really small with almost no advance and, you know, Hardly any, you don't get any profit off it. So a lot of people are doing what they should, which is just going and publishing the damn thing themselves. Yeah. Um, I, th I think that's good. I mean, it, it, it means there'll be a lot more, there'll be a lot more crap, but there'll be a lot more information and books from, and articles and all that from people who you might not have heard of. You know, there's all kinds of unknown geniuses who used to be walking around and there still are, but less than there were. You know, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't have known about Mac for years, and wouldn't have, maybe not even met him if it weren't for the internet, because that's how I met Paul Kimball. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it it ties into another thing that so I lumped in here with the internet was just the podcasting boom, because uh, now it's like there's tons and tons and tons of shows, which is good for I think everybody, because then you know there's way more outlets for people to put out their research and stuff like that and for the consumers, for lack of a better term, to find interviews and stuff like that. Because when I first got into it, it was like impossible to find interviews with some people uh, unless you, you know, unless you were uh, like a member at Coast to Coast or something, you can get into their archive. But other than that, there weren't too many shows out there that you could listen to. Yeah, there's a, there's a few big good ones like, like yours and I guess Kevin Smith and Angela Joyner's doing a good one now and you know, I guess I would count myself too because I like my show. Your show's um, great. But I've been, you know, I've been doing interviews and radio stuff since since like the late nineties. Um, I started on a pirate station, a pirate FM broadcast station, and um, things just changed. And 
now everybody does podcasts, and I think in a lot of ways that's that's better because you know it, people couldn't always listen to my interviews, but now they can listen to them live, or they can you know they they can listen to any time they want, driving in the car or whatever. That's it, it's wonderful. And of course, there's a lot of crap too. But you know, like that Heinlein, Robert A. Heinlein said, ninety-five percent of everything is crap. <laughs> All right, Nick. What about you? The internet, podcasting, how um, to change esoterica in the last ten years? Well, I would have to say that sort of Greg sums it up perfectly. You know, there's the the good outweighs the bad. Um, yeah, there's some bad. Most there's a lot of good. You know, but certainly the technological advances, um, the interaction, the speed with which you know we can. We can liaise with each other and chat and everything else. You know, it's all, it would have been unheard of, even inconceivable, I think, 20 years ago. So that's been a major boost to the subject. Yeah, you've got um, a wealth of shit to wade through as well. But in saying that, you know, I agree with Greg that the good far outweighs the bad, you know, and, and you know, if, you, if you're not able to sort out the good from the bad, well, you shouldn't be in the subject anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately, that that is uh, not the case, I guess. Um, and uh, what about just how the Internet, uh, and you can probably speak to this, Nick, because it sounds like it kind of happened over there in England specifically, mm -hmm. but I know it's happened here in the U.S. too, just how the Internet's displaced uh, the, the old-timey UFO group uh, well, thing. Yeah, actually, it's interesting you bring that up because in many respects, it, it probably hasn't done it as much in Britain as in America. I'll tell you for why, because, you know, it's like, although, you know, both you and Greg are, are good friends of mine, I probably only see you once or twice a year. Um, and that would probably be the case even if there wasn't an internet to chat on all the while, purely because of the size of America. Yeah. Now, you know, Britain itself is only like 800 miles long. Um, so even in this day and age with the internet, it's no big achievement for someone who lives in London to drive to the city of Birmingham, where I'm originally from, because it's only 120 miles away. So, you know, that in other words, that whereas over here, I suppose the internet is truly invaluable because of the sheer distances involved. That doesn't, in, in England, it doesn't necessarily prevent people going to, you know, this conference or that conference because it's not a big drive anyway, if yeah. you see what I mean. So I think, I think in that respect, it's probably more noticeable over here in terms of making accessibility to people much easier. You know, if somebody lives in Nebraska and I live in Texas, you know, it's an invaluable tool. In England, living in London and somebody else in Birmingham, well, you just jump on the train. So I think that that's the big difference probably between the two countries. Okay. I'm kind of running out of steam here, and I don't really see too much else uh, worthy of extrapolation because we've talked about almost all this stuff uh, throughout these years' worth of things. I don't really have any other questions, so I guess we'll <laughs> we'll go into uh, what's – What's next? I, it, it's almost impossible to predict what's going to happen in the next decade, so we, we won't even go there. We'll just get into uh, what's next for you guys, because I know you can predict what's next for you guys in uh, 2010. Nick, I'm sure you're uh, working on some stuff, and I know Greg has uh, got some stuff in the pipeline as well. So um, I guess we'll start with Greg. What's next for you in 2010? Well, I'm, um, I sent Nick a, a uh, first few paragraphs of the uh, Who Was the Falcon article, which I'm working on right now. Yes. Um, that I've probably mentioned before. I'm going to have it finished in the next couple months here. I've just got to do a little bit of research on it. The problem with the article 
is that uh, my I, I can't get confirmation from anybody except one source of who Falcon was, and that's that's been hampering me for like three or four years because nobody either wants to or can confirm his identity for me. So I was talking with Ken Thomas in, in Vegas about this this problem. He goes, "Well, why worry about it? Why don't you just put it out and see what people say?" I said, well, it's incomplete, and there's all kinds of problems with it. He goes, just put it out there. Put it out and tell people how you found out, who you think it is, and then see what the reaction is. Yeah. And it took me a while. I kind of wrestled with that. I was like, well, that it just seems incomplete. It seems dishonest in a way. But maybe if I'm honest about how I came to that conclusion and the, the facts leading up to it, and make it clear that, you know, please take this information and run with it. And somebody else, if you can get further than me, great. But why have it sitting there, sitting in my brain, you know, with, with nothing going on with it for forever? Right, yeah. Maybe somebody else could come up with something that you wouldn't have been able to find or, you know, maybe someone will confirm it that you wouldn't know to ask. And I'm sure people are going to get mad and say I'm lying or, or my source was lying or whatever. But you know what? I don't care. I, I just really don't care. I just want to get it out. I mean, the reaction would be a lot more interesting than, than well, the reaction is a lot more interesting than never, nobody ever knowing because I'm the only person that's ever going to say something about it. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, it's not that big a deal in the big picture of anything. Um, it's just a minor footnote. But it's, it's you know, Project Beta was also, to my mind, it's kind of a minor footnote in ufology. The, the implications of it may not have been so minor, I guess, but the one little piece sitting in there is that I just called this guy the Falcon and that he worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency or the CIA or something like that. Um, I've got some information on him. I've got books that he's written things like that. Maybe somebody can, can pinpoint it better for me. Maybe the people who, who were cagey with me wouldn't tell me when I come out and say it. Maybe they'll contact me, you know, through back channels or something and, and, and confirm something for me or tell me I'm full of crap. I don't know. Um, and the other thing is, uh, well, I, I won't talk about the other project because it'll make me not do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a mysterious other project and uh, the revelation of Falcon's identity in, in 2010. Yes, most definitely. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, a few other scattered projects I'm thinking about. Um, some some of them have nothing to do with UFOs and everything to do with other anomalous things in history. Interesting. Okay. Don't talk about it anymore, though. I don't want you to stop doing it. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because people say, well, why don't you say it? It's, it there's this there's this um, thing in in uh, this rule. It's a psychological rule too, but I learned it by studying Western occultism. Uh, I don't know, 15 years ago. Yeah. And it's if you talk about something, if you mention something and talk about it, it makes you far less likely to do anything about it because subconsciously, somewhere in your brain, you think you've done something about it just by saying it. That's very bad with me. As soon as I mention something, it's like. It makes it fifty percent less likely I'm going to do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right, how about you, Nick? What do you have on the drawing board here for uh, 2010? Um, well, usual lot of blogging, I suppose, and magazine articles and things like that. And you know, I like to do a lot of small little projects and you know, like book introductions for people, things like that. Um, I guess on the UFO front, the one, um, probably the only 
kind of big UFO project I'll be doing next year, which hopefully I'll wrap up by around about February, March, something like that, is a book I'm doing for Anomalous Books, for Patrick Weege's Anomalous Books, uh, called Final Events, which is basically, um, I know Greg knows aspects of this, and I think I mentioned it to you, it's it's basically a look at um, like a quasi-official think tank group that existed in the DOD throughout part of the 70s and 80s at least, and in some form or other before that, that kind of concluded that the UFO presence on Earth is demonic. The idea that it's sort oh, of wow. like a, you know, like a false, uh, like a satanic deception, that sort of thing. Um, now, the thing I'm pointing out in the book is that, you know, it's a theory in the same way that people theorize that UFOs are extraterrestrial or it's all due to hoaxes or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it was simply a group of guys, literally a group of guys, no women, uh, who got together in an official, not necessarily in the, to start with in an official capacity, but kind of like as almost like a an after-work club scenario discussing theories and ideas, and then it kind of mutated into something where there was a degree of official funding and they got influence from people on the inside to, you know, basically set it up as sort of a think tank organization and concluded that, you know, that abductions were sort of more to do with the human soul than anything to do with DNA extraction and that we were being lulled into a sense of deceit and it was going to lead almost up to like the biblical prophecy of Armageddon and, you know, the book of Revelations and that sort of thing. So it gets into some really weird esoteric areas. But, you know, for me, from a journalistic perspective, the, the thrust, it was interesting, the idea that, you know, there are people in the government that think literal techno-demons are flying over us, stealing our souls, so to speak. Yeah, that's strange. And uh, when do you expect that to be available? Oh, I hope to hand over to Patrick within about a month or so. so. Nice. So it's like so, sometime in the middle of the year or something like that? Yeah. Maybe earlier than that. Yeah. I don't know what the turnaround is on those kind of things. So. No, but Pat, with, particularly with POD books, I can get them out really quickly now. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. I think that's it. Is there anything we should talk about? Or we, we covered a whole shitload of stuff, so I think we're probably all set. Uh, anything that we left out from 09 or the, the aughts that, that uh, you know, bears mentioning? No? Good. Um, really? <laughs> it was, sounded like that we were, um, and he addressed this too, that we were um, jaded or negative or whatever, and that, that, that that's not how we feel at all. No. I mean, my personal nothing went on. Yeah, it's better to be realistic about it. The, well, it, this is the this is the old problem. If you look for if you look for validation and and excitement and all that from outside of yourself, it's 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 a losing battle. But if if you treat any subject, you know, particularly the UFO subject, which has no discernible answer, as as kind of an exercise and kind of a vehicle for you personally, you can get so much more out of it than arguing with people, um, uh, looking to validate your own personal belief system or whatever. It's 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 like a I don't know. It's like a, if you treat it the right way, it's like a it's kind of like a self help. Uh, <laughs> You know that that's what it's been for me. The UFOs and anomalies and all the all this paranormal stuff. It's just it it makes me feel like we don't know all the answers yet, and that keeps people going and it keeps people learning. And it keeps people looking forward when a lot of people are saying we know everything and just shut up. You yeah. know, it's just basically a slap in the face of authority, and I always like that. Indeed, yeah, yeah. I think it's safe to say that none of us three are cynical about it. It's just. 
or jaded. It's just, uh, you know, 09 was kind of a down year, and, and the aughts were kind of a down decade for UFOs. And, um, you know, we have to be realistic about that and hope for hope for the best, I guess, in the future. Yep. Nicole, but not about everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, i got to thank you guys once again for coming back on the show here to wrap up the year. I know Nick's going to be back to talk about contactees shortly on the program, and, and Greg will be back for the baseball special and, and maybe some more UFO discussion as well. Uh, maybe when the Falcon story breaks, finally we'll have you on and we'll do an episode about all that and uh, maybe a refresher on Project Beta because uh, I, I haven't even had the guts to go back and listen to our original Project Beta interview because it was like the fourth interview I ever did. So I have a feeling it, it doesn't hold up as well as I'd like. So I'd like to sort of revisit Project Beta maybe now with this new Falcon information um, to fill in some of the blanks. So I know you guys will be back on the show, and, and Greg still has to keep that stranglehold on the record. So I know he definitely will be, <laughs> will be back. Um, but I can't you know, Tell me so I, we can make up some reason for why I have to be on this show. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Well, dude, I, I, like I said, dude, I, I think that honestly, I think that uh, I think I could do a better Project Beta interview now. That I know you well, and and um, and and I've done so many interviews, so I'd like to sort of revisit that. So Fine. that's a given. Yeah. And, and depending on what this new project is. All right, you know. All joking aside, any time I can come on and talk talk to you is, is great because, you know, everybody that comes on your show is just like, shit, I never thought he would say that or I didn't know that. So, you know, obviously it's a good show. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So I'll just say thanks again for coming back on the show, guys. I already talk to you all the time anyway, so uh, I'll be talking to you again soon. And uh, thanks for helping us wrap up uh, 2009. Look forward to a great 2010 for all of us. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do it again Next year, hopefully, with some uh, more salacious tales to <laughs> to comb over, as opposed to some of the uh, lukewarm ones we we had this year. But you know, I do what I can, folks. I work with what the uh, the ethos gives me. And in, in 2009, it was a lot of uh, more of the same, pretty much. So, I guess we'll close it out there. Thanks again, guys, for coming back on the show. No, right, thanks, Tim. See you later, Greg. All right, see you, Nick. Talk to you both soon. That does it for part two of our look back at the year 2009 and the past decade in the world of esoterica. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to my good friends Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. Let me give you the websites once again for them. www.ufomystic.com is their joint venture, UFO Mystic. Outstanding website, lots of great stuff on there. Nick Redfern can be found at www.nickredfern.com. Pretty simple, all one word, nickredfern.com. And you definitely want to check out Greg Bishop's excellent podcast, Radio Mysterioso. And you can find that at www.radiomysterioso.com. All one word, radio, M-I-S-T-E-R-I-O-S-O.com, Radio Mysterioso. Check it out. As noted at the end of the conversation there, you'll be hearing from Nick Redfern very soon to talk about his new book, Contactees. I'm in the midst of reading it right now and enjoying it quite a bit. And we're already planning on doing a solo interview to cover that outstanding piece of work in the not-too-distant future. And Greg Bishop will be back, not just for the baseball special, but hopefully sometime later on down the line in the spring to talk about Project Beta and this new Falcon revelation that he's got in the works. So stay tuned for more appearances from the dynamic duo that are the UFO Mystics, 
on BOA Audio Season 5. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And since I'm still kind of under the gun here, let me give you some advice, folks. Don't plan to do work on December 31st or the 1st and 2nd of January. I didn't get shit done, my friends, in the last few days. I'm barely getting this episode together and out to you on Sunday evening. So I still got to sit down and really go through these emails. I've got a ton of them that have piled up since damn near mid-December. So I got a lot of folks that are awaiting responses from me. I'm going to get back to them. I've looked at their emails. I've read them, but I haven't really gone back to reread them, respond, and put them in the appropriate folders for use in BOA Audio listener feedback. But we still got one here that I've been teasing for a while. It comes from Keith, who wrote in talking about the traffic sign conspiracy theories. And for those folks who are new to the program and are not familiar with this ongoing end-of-show storyline, let me give you a little thumbnail look at what has been unfolding here. At the beginning of Season 5, of course, our premier guest was Jim Mars, and he talked about the traffic sign conspiracy theory, which suggests that codes on the back of traffic signs are used for a UN invasion. Subsequent to that, we got an email from Keith, who used to work in his state's traffic department, and explained to us that the symbols found on the back of road signs are actually really just a coding system to tell folks who work for the traffic department when the signs were put up and all that good stuff, and it was more of a benign reasoning behind these mysterious codes. Following that episode, where we read the email from Keith, we got an email from Joshua, who essentially said, you know, it's the traffic department's own fault for these people having their conspiracy theories because they've come up with this convoluted color and shape system that invites, uh, you know, paranoid folks to develop their own interpretations. So now that I've brought you up to speed on the ongoing storyline here, we've got Keith's response to Joshua's email where he takes issue with the color and shape system. Let's dive into Keith's rebuttal here and uh, find out what he has to say. I just listened to the response to my email from Joshua. I have no idea why the color and shape system was used in the first place other than I can guarantee that it was cheaper to produce. No print, just colored squares of plastic. Cut the squares diagonally and you have two triangles. The fact that there are those in the workforce who are illiterate may have played a part. My crew consisted of three men, one of whom could barely scratch out his name. As you said, it was a simpler time when the system was originated. The main thing I would like to say is that people will jump in an opportunity to sue the state if, for example, a sign warning of a hairpin turn wasn't visible and an injury resulted. People see paychecks in the strangest places. Even when there is no logical liability and a serious injury or death occurs, just hand over a blank check and hope for the best. More of your tax money at work. There could be an unknown plot to destroy us all. I don't know, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. Jesse Ventura is becoming my new hero. The only thing we can do is keep our eyes and ears open and sort through the crap. Again, Tim, thanks for your time and the opportunity to vent. Have a happy holiday and keep up the investigations. We need all the evidence we can get. It's scary out there. Signed, Keith. There you go. Thanks for writing in, Keith. Much appreciated that you took the time to respond to Joshua's critique of the highway sign system. I think we can put this issue to rest for now, folks, unless we get some new information concerning the 
highway road sign conspiracy. I don't think it's conspiracy at all, to tell you the truth, my friends. I've kind of come to the conclusion, having read Keith's original email, and I definitely recommend folks go back and check out that email at the end of the program to really catch up on what we've been talking about here at the end of this week's episode. I believe we read Keith's email at the end of episode 503, and then Joshua's rebuttal at the end of episode 504. So go on back and check those out to get caught up with what we're talking about. Thanks again for writing in, Keith. Much appreciated. As I said, I think we can put this to rest. I've still been in correspondence with Keith. Great guy. And as I said originally, outstanding email from him to kick off this whole conversation about the road sign conspiracy theories. I know I got a ton of emails that I still have to get to and a bunch of correspondence that are waiting to be featured here in BOA Audio listener feedback, but I'm always looking for more correspondence from the awesome BOA Audio listeners. How do you do that? That's simple. Three methods. I'm going to go through them nice and quick for you because chances are if you're a long-time listener to the program, you're kind of tired of hearing me go through the paces every week at the end of the show. Email boaaudio at hotmail.com. Pretty simple, all one word, boaaudio at hotmail.com. Two, go to banalofamerica.com, click the contact button. Three, join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. It's free, it's fun, it's fantastic. How do you like that for some alliteration? It's the US of E.com, the official BOA forum. Come on over and join up. We'd love to have you there, folks. Those are the three methods email, contact button, and forum. Any of those means will put your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. I promise I'm going to dive into that mailbag as soon as possible, probably later on tonight if I don't enjoy a few cold ones, and I'm going to start working my way down the list of folks who've written to me in the last two weeks and get back to all of you real soon. Sit tight. If you sent me an email, I promise you'll be hearing from me in no time flat. Up next, we thank the infamous and esteemed BOA staff, they are, of course, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolan, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. The BOA staff's vacation is almost up. I'm already getting columns sent in from the writers, and they are looking to be some tremendous pieces of work. You definitely want to stop over to Banal of America here as 2010 begins because the staff has a bunch of stuff ready for all of you great folks out there to check out and read at the website. We're going to be making the full transition over to BOA 2.0 in the not-too-distant future, hopefully over the course of this week. So come on over to Banal of America if you haven't checked out BOA 2.0 and get a look at the whole new layout for BOA. I'm tremendously proud of it. And I really didn't have anything to do with it. Our webmaster, Jeremy Boston, did. He did an amazing job. And you definitely want to check out BOA 2.0 as it becomes the new look for Banal of America. Once the BOA staff settles in from their post-vacation malaise, I'll be sure to start plugging their new columns here at the end of the program. But for now, let me just tell you, if you're only listening to Banal of America audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story Benallofamerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. 
And if you're a newcomer to the program and you don't know the URL for the website, let me give it to you right now. It is www.binallofamerica.com. Check it out. The holiday season is over, my friends, and I hope you didn't break the bank too much spending money on those good-for-nothing cousins of yours and the snotty-nosed neighbors. Don't you hate having to buy Christmas presents for people you don't like? I do. I like to give them Ouija boards myself. That's my gift guide. For people that annoy you, give them Ouija boards. But anyway, hopefully I don't annoy you because you're listening to the program and you're listening this far into the program. So I'm going to ask you for a little Christmas gift belatedly right here, right now, and ask for a donation to the Banal of America franchise. How do you do that? That's simple. You go to BOA, click the contact button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, I've got some good news for you folks. Traditionally, we would take January off, cultivate new interviews, and come back towards the end of the month with a whole new slew of BOA Audio episodes. But I'm happy to report we still have a bunch of them in the can. And starting at the beginning of the week, I'm going to be making a lot of contacts with folks who are on the to-be-interviewed list. They already have sort of committed to an interview. It's just a matter of scheduling them. And I'm going to be taping a whole bunch of interviews here in the beginning of January. More information on those as they become available. So the traditional BOA Audio January hiatus is a thing of the past, at least for this season. So the ball keeps on rolling here next week on the program. We're going to go international once again. We're heading back to Scandinavia, but we're going to go to a different country this time around. Our guest is Ole Jone Brena head of UFO Norway, and we're going to be talking about Norwegian ufology, a very fun conversation. I'll give you a heads up right now. There's no discussion of the Norway spiral. We actually taped the interview way before the Norway spiral mania happened, but that's probably a good thing because who wants to rehash that whole thing once again? What we are going to be talking about is the history of noteworthy UFO events in Norway, the history of UFO studies in Norway, what the government and the military have to say about UFOs in that fine country, what the public has to say about the UFO phenomenon. It's one of our trademark international ufology editions of the program. As I said with Ole Jona Brena, I'm doing my best to pronounce his name here. I haven't edited the episode yet, so I got to go back and make sure I know how to pronounce it for when I do the intros next week. But suffice it to say, it is another enlightening discussion and a view of UFO studies from way across the globe in Norway, and another opportunity for you to learn a whole lot more about what ufologists in other countries are doing over there. It's quite a conversation. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yone is a really cool guy and a really easygoing guy. Looking forward to hearing what folks think of that. That's coming at you at BOA. At this point, in a few short days, I'll be looking forward to doing just one episode a week again after this marathon week we've had here with two episodes. But that's next week, Norwegian Ufology with Ole Jona Brena, head of UFO Norway, only at banalofamerica.com and only on BOA Audio. And on that note, we anchor the ship here and close out another edition of BOA Audio. Once again, huge thanks 
to Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop for coming on the show for this dual guest marathon conversation, giving us so much time out of their busy holiday schedule. Greatly appreciated, I'm sure, not just by me, but all the awesome BOA Audio listeners. And speaking of which, I want to thank all you great folks out there, the BOA Audio listeners. You make my job so much fun. I wouldn't be doing this if not for the support and feedback and encouragement I get from the really cool BOA Audio listeners. So I want to thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. We'll be coming at you in a few short days with Ole Yona Brena and a whole bunch more episodes coming at you throughout 2010. So until then, this is Tim Benal, thanking you for listening and signing off.